Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 375, The Trinity, the Deity of Christ, and the Best Craig, Part 1. Many of you know that Dr. William Lane Craig is one of the most fearsome Christian debaters on the internet. He has a worldwide reputation for wiping the floor with atheist debaters, particularly big-talking, arrogant ones like the late Christopher Hitchens. He's also handily whipped a number of philosophy PhDs. And by saying that he's a great debater, I don't mean that he's aggressive or mean like your common shabby internet apologist. No, he beats you with a smile. He does better research than you. He doesn't rely on just polemical labels and descriptions. He exhibits clear and deep engagement with his opponent's arguments. He teaches the debate audience what the arguments of his opponent are, often more clearly than the opponent has expressed them, and then he shows how to refute them, as in which premise or premises one should deny, or perhaps in a few cases showing how the argument is logically invalid. He never just advises his audience that this atheist philosopher or physicist or whoever is just a nut who can be safely ignored. He does all his homework, he fully understands their views, and he fully engages with their views with deadly results. Does he always win? No. He is capable of losing when he's up against an equally talented philosopher and he's defending an inherently weak position. But particularly on the existence of God, he tends to really beat down his opponents in debate. And it's really something to behold. You can learn a lot about debating if you watch some of his better debates. Now, I'm capable of debating as well. I've been in a few. Not all of my debates have been online on YouTube, but a few of them are. And I too can exhibit some of these intellectual and argumentative virtues, like Dr. Craig. Although, you have to distinguish the best Dale from the less than best Dale. On some days, I just didn't get enough sleep the night before, or I've had annoyances at work or strife with family members. Plus, I'm in my 50s, and some people will say that's not very old, but I can assure you that very often I am feeling old, cranky, and crotchety. Also, I have a lot to do. I have a lot of different concerns and interests and, in a sense, jobs pulling me in different directions, and sometimes I just don't have the proper time to devote to something. So for all of these reasons, when you're getting the less than best Dale, I may show lack of courtesy, lack of charity, I might misinterpret you, I might totally miss the point. I might just fail to engage. Maybe I haven't done enough homework to even know what you think and why. You're not always getting the best Dale. Sometimes you're getting something less. Of course, this is just part of the human condition. It applies equally well to Dr. William Lane Craig. I noticed that his contribution to the debate book, responding to me, seemed a bit hurried. It was not as well argued as I would expect from him, and actually involved a good deal of point missing and even subject changing. He would mention one of the facts that's the basis of my argument in my opening chapter, and then he would jump off to talk about something else that he'd rather talk about. This is not the best Craig. 
Of course, you'll have to read that chapter and see if you agree. But that was my reaction, that I was getting less than the best Dr. Craig. Now, I think this is understandable because of what Dr. Craig talks about in one of his recent podcasts devoted to our interactions at the recent conference. As he discusses there, in 2023, he was working on three debate books. There was a debate book with the brilliant Christian philosopher Peter Van Inwagen about abstract objects, and a debate book about rival views on Genesis and evolution, an incredibly hard topic. And then there was this debate book that I'm in called One God, Three Persons, Four Views. And by the way, I expect it to be out soon, so keep a lookout for a blog post at trinities.org when I find out that it's published. Recently, I posted three podcast episodes in which I played and commented on that November 2023 book session at the meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society in San Antonio, Texas, which was devoted to this four views on the Trinity book. In response, Dr. Craig and his host, Kevin Harris, have put out two response episodes based on five excerpts from the Q&A session. I have to say, I was disappointed in these. I didn't think that we were getting the best Craig here. The basic thrust of the two episodes is this. Tuggy is a kook, and you can safely ignore him, and maybe he's even a cultist or close enough. Nothing interesting to see here, people. Move along. That's the gist of it. You never get really any hint of my arguments that I presented in that session or the arguments that I presented in my opening chapter of the book. Not sure why. Honestly, I was a little offended on behalf of his audience, the audience of the Reasonable Faith podcast. I think they expect better than they got. Now, maybe Tuggy is a fringe kook and a cultist, but even so, Tuggy's views ought to be carefully described, fully investigated, and seriously and deeply engaged. I have an earned PhD from an excellent university. I've been publishing peer-reviewed academic papers on these topics for over two decades now. And if I've raised interesting and carefully hewn objections to Craig's views, which I have, those should be confronted head-on, not ignored. Now, there were a number of little peccadilloes in these episodes, little minor breaches of etiquette that any one of them I would just blow off and not care about. I have a thick skin, but they did all kind of pile up. So he didn't refer to where he got this audio from. It was either from the YouTube channel of the Unitarian Christian Alliance or from the Trinity's podcast, but they chose not to mention or link those things. They just said, hey, we've got some conference audio. Second, Dr. Craig repeatedly in these episodes describes me as thinking that Jesus is a mere man or a mere creature. I don't say those things. Those are polemical descriptions of my positions, as is the term Socinian. That's never been a term that I've used of my views. I've just never been a disciple of Socinus. I know some people use it in a generic way, just like some people use Arian for any subordinationist. To call my view the most Jewish, that's a little bit cringy, but anyway, I get it. What do I call my views? But you wouldn't hear this from Dr. Craig. My views are standardly called on the internet nowadays, biblical Unitarian, or the more general Unitarian Christian. Now You may not like those labels, I understand, but that's what we call ourselves. But what's more important, I think, is that Craig at first jumps right for the Socinian thing and doesn't mention the position I actually defend in the book, which is this, 
that the one God just is the Father, and that it's not the case that either the Son or Spirit is fully divine. That's a broader and, of course, easier to defend Unitarian view. It's compatible with what I just said, with what I call biblical Unitarian views about God and Jesus. So, views like those of Socinus or the ancient dynamic Monarchians. But it's also compatible, by design, with the views of ancient and early modern subordinationists, such as Justin, Tertullian, Novation, Origen, Samuel Clark, and John Biddle, all of whom taught the one God to be the Father alone, which is the defining claim of any Unitarian theology. Craig wants to jump quickly to the Socinian label to ensure that I'm viewed as just super radical and to take attention away from the frankly easy-to-defend position that I stake out in this book. Now, why don't I defend all of my views in this book? Because it's a book about God as Trinity versus God as the Father alone. It's not a book about Christology or pneumatology. I don't hide my full views in the book, but I simply defend what I need to, and honestly, I put forward a very strong case. Of course, you'll have to be the judge when you read my opening statement in that book. Now, speaking about working maybe a little bit too quickly, I was surprised in a recent episode when he said that Bo Branson's view is Trinitarian. Branson makes clear in the book that for him, the one God just is the Father alone. That's the signature claim of any Unitarian Christian theology, which I do point out in the book. Granted, Branson is very hard to interpret in this book, and he does appeal to what you could call non-standard counting principles. But still, I thought it was clear Branson doesn't believe in a tripersonal God. Okay, well, then he can't be a Trinitarian. I think Craig should agree with me about that. Also, he mentions Branson defending simplicity. I don't remember that in the book. It is true in general that Branson is strongly motivated to have a traditional and creedal approach to this topic. Another mistake, and this is common amongst evangelical apologists, mentioning the idea that oneness Pentecostal theology is Unitarian. Well, it does arguably have a God who's unipersonal, but it's not Unitarian. The definition of a Unitarian view is one on which the one God just is the Father and not anyone else. And oneness people think the one God just is the Father and also just is the Son. So there's a surface similarity there. Both are non-Trinitarian positions. And yet there's a very deep difference between the positions that goes all the way back to the second Christian century, if not the first. Right in the time of origin, and even in the late 100s, It seems that you had a few Christians who thought that the Father and Son are the same someone. At the same time, you have dynamic monarchians, which is a view of God and Jesus like mine. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some excerpts from the first of Craig's recent response episodes and my responses. Let's listen to a little bit of their first response episode. 
This is host Kevin Harris expressing amazement that I hold views which, you know, really aren't all that uncommon if you're on the internet much. Bill, do you think it's a rather radical move to try to overturn the doctrine of the Trinity? I understand mm. that we should scrutinize what we believe and evaluate doctrine by scripture. But the doctrine of the Trinity is a is a major consideration. Yes. yes, it really is, Kevin, because you see included in the doctrine of the Trinity is the deity of Christ. Wow, that was quick. <laughs> I've been saying for some time that evangelicals in practice and everyday life, in their preaching, they really don't care about triune God theories. They're very, very marginal. They do, however, care about the idea that Jesus is God. Do they know what that means? But notice here, he just immediately, in a sense, kind of changes the subject, or at least changes the focus. Can you believe it? This guy denies the deity of Christ. Okay, well, why is this doctrine of a trinity so important? You know, we're immediately now talking about this other thing. Let me let him finish. That Jesus Christ is not a mere man. Jesus Christ mere is man. God incarnate. Uh, and so I think that a Unitarian view of God is, well, it's, it's heretical, frankly. So it does seem to me that Tuggy's Socinian brand of Unitarianism, that Jesus was a mere man— is outside the pale of Christianity. It, it is a heresy and would represent a radical revision. Radical? Well, sure. My theology and Christology are clearly outside the bounds of Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox theologies. But why exactly are they outside the bounds of Christian theologies? Where is that in the Bible, which is supposed to be our source for teaching and practice? When it comes to Unitarian Christians like me, our teaching and preaching sound exactly like what we read in the book of Acts. And most Protestants think that a person can, by believing just the basics of the gospel, sans Trinity and Incarnation, be born again. Moreover, mainstream orthodoxy on the Trinity and Incarnation are defined by adherence to the so-called ecumenical creeds composed by the councils of bishops in 381 at Constantinople and at 451 in Chalcedon. Why should a Protestant think that no one else is a Christian if they don't acknowledge these requirements? After all, most of us Protestants now don't think that small-c Catholic bishops have any authority over us. Did they back then? If so, why? Craig here just assumes Catholic traditions of exclusion, and I suggest that his audience should demand more. We all know that he's capable of more. Why, Dr. Craig, is this heretical? Specifically, why is no one a Christian unless they believe in some triune God theory? So is the view radical? Yes, but of course, what's radical is relative to established tradition. It's relative to time and place. Dynamic monarchianism is arguably the earliest Christology, and it's well known that these views were common from the times of Justin through the times of Origen, and even into the 4th century, when we find a bishop of a major city teaching and debating views like these. See the Trinity's podcast on Photonus of Sirmium. Such views were then, particularly in the 2nd century, within the mainstream, and were considered radical only by the modalists and the increasingly dominant Logos theorists, especially following the example of Origen. 
And of course, in the so-called radical wing of the Reformation, you have views like these repeatedly popping up. Why? Because people then were willing to put scripture over tradition when they clash. And that's precisely what today's biblical Unitarians think we're doing. We teach what lies on the face of Acts and the Synoptics, which we understand to be compatible with what's taught in the rest of the New Testament books. So my views are radical relative to mainstream Christianity now, but don't ignore the restorationist intent of those Christians holding my sorts of views. We're just Protestants who are going farther for principled reasons than did Luther or Calvin. Okay, so evangelicals think that everything hangs on the deity of Christ, whatever exactly that amounts to. And it's hard to argue from the Bible to a doctrine of the Trinity worth the name, more on that later. But in their view, the deity of Christ is just obvious in the New Testament. After all, isn't Jesus called God a few times? Now, of course, orthodoxy and indeed the New Testament also demand that Jesus is truly human. In other words, that he's a real man, a human being. So if someone's going to affirm the deity of Christ, they're going to need some sort of two natures theory, some sort of account on which this is not obviously false, that there is a God-man, a Christ who is both human and divine. The problem is that a God-man seems to entail a bunch of contradictions. And so that seems to be the concept of an impossible thing, something which is real in no possible world, to put it one way. If that's right, it would be like the concepts married bachelor and square circle. It's easy in each case to derive one or more contradictions from the concept, and that's how we know that those things can't possibly be real. Now, why is it that we can't do the same thing with this concept, God-man? Think about it. Divine, so uncreated. Human, so created. So therefore, created and not. Divine, so necessarily existing. Human, so contingently existing, therefore necessarily existing and not. Untemptable, because fully divine, but temptable, because human, therefore temptable and not. As divine, essentially immortal. As human, capable of mortality, so essentially immortal and not, and so on. Now, for the last 20-plus years, Dr. William Lane Craig has defended his own particular two-natures theory, which he calls Neo-Apollinarian. I have thoroughly refuted this in a full-length, peer-reviewed article, which has been published since June of 2023 in the journal Theologica. Dr. Craig has not so far responded, but I think he owes us a response at some point, because unless there is some successful two-natures theory, and when you say that the New Testament teaches a God-man, you are just uncharitably foisting contradictions onto the texts. Without a successful two-natures theory, a person looking for a charitable, contradiction-free reading of the New Testament books will need to look elsewhere. And in our forthcoming Trinity debate book, Dr. Craig spends a lot of time just urging that the Bible obviously teaches the deity of Christ. Now, I was unimpressed by his interpretations, and he was in turn unimpressed by my dismissing his Catholic-style exegesis. In the book, the severe word limits prevented me from fully rebutting his traditional misreadings of the New Testament. In his view, if Jesus is referred to using the Greek term theos, and this usage is neither metaphorical nor hyperbolic, 
then the author must think that he's divine in the way that Craig's Trinity theory needs. And I think, based on my study of the New Testament, that that's all mistaken. We really need another venue in which to further argue about what the New Testament does and doesn't teach about the Lord Jesus Christ, and about whether, as I argue, his two natures theory just leaves a bunch of contradictions on the table. That's why my article's called Craig's Contradictory Christ. In my view, his theory utterly fails to do the work intended for it. More on this later. These topics, Trinity and Incarnation, they're really two different topics, two big topics. It's really not right to try to argue about them together. Of course, they're logically related. The Trinity logically implies the deity of Christ, but of course it's false that the deity of Christ implies a Trinity, because one could believe in the deity of Christ and be a modalist. And the deity of Christ is more fundamental, and it occurs earlier in small-c Catholic traditions. And even today, it's more central to most believers' thinking and worship. And of course, if the deity of Christ is false, then so is the Trinity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, more about the, quote, modern relation of identity. Okay, so let's go back to their episode where they again come back to the topic of what Dr. Craig likes to call the modern relation of identity. The modern logical relation of identity is the most fundamental equivalence relation holding between an object and itself and no other thing. It is a relation which is reflexive, symmetric, transitive, and Euclidean. What that means is, first of all, it's reflexive that A is identical to A. Everything is identical to itself. Secondly, it's symmetric. If A is identical to B, then B is identical to A. Thirdly, it's transitive. If A is identical to B and B is identical to C, then A is identical to C. And finally, it's Euclidean, which is to say if A is identical to C and B is identical to C, then A is identical to B. Right. That's all very well said. Now listen to this part. And this modern grasp of the identity relation was something that the ancients did not have. So notice that sometimes Dr. Craig talks about this modern identity relation as if it's one concept, and then there's also this sort of basic concept. That, of course, is not right. There's only one concept of identity that people use in making identity judgments, such as Mark Twain just is Sam Clemens. A person in ancient times could make a claim like Abram just as Abraham, and they can easily do this not understanding all of the necessary features and implications of that identity relation. This is really a common phenomenon that you can have a concept and not realize all that it implies. So you could explain to a little kid what a right triangle is. 
that doesn't mean that he can give you a proper definition of a right triangle. Not really. It doesn't mean that he knows the Pythagorean theorem. People might have a concept of a right triangle for hundreds or thousands of years before anybody gets around to discovering the Pythagorean theorem. Okay, so it's not that there's an ancient concept and a modern concept. It's that there's one concept of identity, and it's true that only in modern times has this really been rigorously and fully explained. If I understand him, Dr. Craig now agrees with that. That's why instead of talking about a modern concept of identity, he talks about a modern grasp of the concept of identity. And later on in his recent discussion, he says this. It is certainly true that people have a primitive concept of identity, that everything is identical to itself. Right. So when you judge that Mark Twain just is Sam Clemens, and when an ancient person judges that Abram just is Abraham, the two people are employing the same concept. But of course, the modern person, if they've been trained in philosophy and or logic, will be able to give a much richer and more informative account of identity and types of arguments that are valid involving identity statements. Okay, so I think there's some agreement here that wasn't necessarily in the book session. However, Dr. Craig is still saying this. Aristotle alone, in his topics, has a couple of sentences on the identity relation where he seemed to grasp this, but his insights were overlooked and forgotten. Um, and as a result, it wasn't until centuries later that the modern concept of identity came to be expressed. And so according to William and Martha Neal in their book, The History of Logic, Aristotle doesn't get any credit for discovering this relationship because it was forgotten and, and not grasped in the ancient world. Okay, it's right that Aristotle did have some important insights about identity, and it's right that these did not get incorporated into the logics of the time, including his, which is one of the greatest ever. And so in that sense, a lot of it was forgotten. It's not true, as Dr. Craig is still repeating, like he read in this one book, that Aristotle just says two sentences about it in one of his works. Just look at my blog post called How Much Did Aristotle Understand About Numerical Sameness, that is Identity, and I refer to a recent, very well done article on this. He actually talks about it in a whole bunch of places and discovers quite a lot about identity. It's interesting how much later logicians fail to follow up on these insights. Okay, now in the book, and in part of our face-to-face -face session back in November, I thought that his argument was that even appealing to identity judgments is just a anachronism when it comes to the New Testament. Like, this is simply a later concept. They simply didn't have it. I pushed back and said, look, all people have this concept. And now it seems to me he's slightly shifted his view, and he agrees, okay, all people do have a concept, but it's just a basic concept. In other words, it's just a lesser, less complete understanding of that one same thing as relation. I think that's right. Okay, well then, it's just not an anachronism to attribute identity judgments to people in ancient times. In my recent episodes, I gave New Testament examples of people thinking about identity claims, and I showed using a plausible thought experiment that they could have made inferences that we would describe as illustrating the transitivity of identity. This was my example of an Old Testament reader seeing the mention of Abram and Abraham in Genesis, realizing this is just one and the same person, and also the same person who's called Abe in his own native tongue. 
right? So he would realize that if Abe just is Abram and Abram just is Abraham, then it has to be that Abe just is Abraham. Someone who could not make that inference, they would have a, a very odd kind of mental handicap if they couldn't see that. So I think Dr. Craig has conceded that yes, ancient people made identity judgments, at least he should. And now I see him as shifting to another idea, which he thinks that in my view, all New Testament authors, when they call someone God, are asserting the identity of that person with God. Unitarianism stands or falls with this assumption that the New Testament authors are making identity statements rather than predicating statements. Now, there's a basic apologetics move that Dr. Craig has advised for two decades now. It's part of making a Trinitarian set of claims, like those asserted in the Athanasian Creed, come out coherent. The suggestion is that we should read those is-God statements not as asserting the identity of each person with God, but rather describing each person, predicating the quality divinity of that person. That way, the Trinitarian avoids a demonstrably incoherent set of claims which would doom such a doctrine of the Trinity to being false. For the deductive proof of that, see section 1.4 of my encyclopedia article on the Trinity. Okay, but this interest of Dr. Craig's, this apologetic strategy, has seemingly blinded him to what my views about the New Testament actually are. I have never held, and I've never said, that every time that theos is applied to someone in the New Testament, that this is an assertion of the numerical sameness of that person with the one God. Rather, my view is and has been that the New Testament authors all clearly assume the identity of the Father with the only God, that is, with Yahweh. So when Peter or Paul refers to the God of my ancestors, that is, the God of the Jews, he's referring to the same one Jesus taught us to pray to as our Father in heaven. God the Father and Yahweh are everywhere assumed to be one and the same in the New Testament, whether by Jesus, the authors of the New Testament books, Jesus' disciples, and even by their Jewish opponents. This widespread assumption is rarely a topic of discussion in the New Testament, although I think in a few places the identity of God with the Father is pretty clearly implied. But I give detailed arguments based on the whole panorama of the New Testament books for why we should attribute this assumption to the New Testament authors. What are those arguments? Well, Dr. Craig isn't going to tell you, at least he hasn't yet. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Craig's podcast revisits some of the Q&A time from that book session. All right, let's get back to the Tuggy is a kook and you don't need to pay attention to him theme. So the first clip they play in their two episodes is a question given to me by the book editor, Dr. Chad McIntosh, on behalf of Dr. Hasker, who couldn't make the session. Uh, how do you explain the fact that there are no credible New Testament scholars who agree with your view that the New Testament uniformly presents a view of Jesus as ontologically human and nothing more? Well, you do have PhDs who think that's true of the Synoptic Gospels and probably of Acts too. Why not? I guess people think pre-existence is obvious and uh, the kind of arguments from Christians like me are just not part of the discussion. 
as a philosopher, you know, if I'm studying free will or something like that, my first task is to find the strongest arguments for all the different sides. This is not done in academic theology. And so it, it's just off the table. It's not considered. They're overlooking the minority report from the early Reformation and also from the times of Origen, Novation, and Tertullian, who all repeatedly complain about, quote, mere man Christians in the mainstream churches. Do you agree that most scholars disagree with Tuggy's minority report, Bill? Okay, when I was talking about a minority report, I was talking about a minority report in the history of Christian theologies and Christologies. I wasn't talking about current scholars. I did say that they tend to ignore this historical minority report and indeed ignore these types of interpretations of the New Testament. It's really striking how much that's so. If you read today's Trinitarian scholars versus those of, say, 1850 or uh, 1780, you'll find a lot more engagement in those early years with non-Trinitarian interpretations. Okay, but again, Dr. Craig wants to give his audience an excuse to just not look into my work over the last 20 years at all, and that excuse is that I just hold kooky, fringy views that literally no scholar now holds, no New Testament scholar. It's not a minority report, Kevin. All New Testament scholars agree All. that in the pages of the New Testament, Christ is declared to be God, just as the Father is God. This is universally acknowledged, even by those who don't believe it themselves. Notice the point about they're not even considering my sorts of interpretations has just been gleefully ignored. And it's not that a person like Ehrman knows how Unitarians interpret John and rejects it. He just literally doesn't know. He has not read that sort of scholarship. And it's not just him. It's practically everybody in the current day guild. This is a real problem, I think, for Tuggy's Socinian view. He needs to explain why it is that his arguments are not convincing to the guild of New Testament scholars. <laughs> well, I don't need to explain that because they don't consider these kinds of arguments. I was struck by this the other day. I was reading a book by the incredibly learned Raymond Brown, a leading New Testament scholar and author of a recent big commentary on the gospel according to John. He just shows zero knowledge of any Unitarian interpretation, not from the 2nd and 3rd century, not from the 4th century, not from the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, not from current day, nothing. It's like it doesn't exist. It's like he never heard of it. So no, I don't need to explain why he rejects my interpretations. It's just too out of the box for them. They've been trained, unfortunately, to not consider these things. In that respect, they're like Catholic scholars of the 1500s who would just never bother to read something by you know, Calvin or Luther, for instance. That's why in my essay in this volume, I attempt to get down and get my fingers dirty in the actual exegesis of the New Testament text to show that the New Testament does affirm the full and unequivocal deity of Christ and invite Tuggy to deal with these texts. This is not the best, Craig. I did notice those arguments in the book. I was not impressed. I thought there was a lot of kind of special pleading in those arguments. 
But for him to suggest that I just simply haven't dealt with the texts shows a surprising lack of familiarity with my work. I've considered all the passages carefully. Dr. Craig just hasn't taken the time to delve into enough of my material. In the book, when he refers to John 1 and says, aha, that teaches the deity of Christ, I say, oh no, it doesn't, and I refer to my lecture on YouTube on the UCA channel entitled, What John 1 Meant. That gives arguments based on a whole large range of recent scholarship about how to interpret John 1 and still be a biblical Unitarian or a dynamic monarchian, and as far as I can tell, he's just chosen to ignore that. Now, I've been given reason to think that he just doesn't read things that aren't published articles or book chapters from scholarly presses. Look, I know it's a pain in the neck to chase down all my podcasts and my YouTube lectures and so on, but I've also produced uh, articles on a lot of things. But Dr. Craig, this is just how some of the younger generations of scholars do things. If you're going to do your homework to really engage with my views, you're going to have to put in some better effort to find out what those views are. What do I think about the text in which many Christians think that Christ was involved in the creation of the world? It's in podcasts. What do I think of when Jesus is worshipped? Published paper, podcast. What do I think of John 1? It's in that long lecture, What John 1 Meant. What do I think about Jesus being called Lord and God? It's in three podcast episodes. I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org to a blog post I made back in 2019 called Debating Dale's Starter Pack, in which I refer to some of my more important presentations that are relevant. You know, how could I possibly not believe in Jesus's pre-human existence? That's there, for instance. Podcast 235, The Case Against Pre-Existence. Okay, but now what of this claim that no New Testament scholar thinks that nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus presented as being as divine as the Father. I think that claim is false. And my counterexample is the famous New Testament scholar James D.J. Dunn, often referred to as Jimmy Dunn. Famously in his book, Christology in the Making, he argues that the idea of incarnation only occurs in the fourth gospel, nowhere else. Of course, Jesus can't be a God-man, and so can't be a man who's also fully divine, unless some sort of incarnation happened. So you might think he's teaching that Jesus' full deity is only taught in the fourth gospel. But then you look carefully at what he means by incarnation, and he basically just means pre-existence, and then that pre-existent person becoming human. He never says it implies full deity. In other words, incarnation as done means that in that book would be affirmed both by Trinitarians and by subordinationist Unitarians like Justin, Novation, Tertullian, and Origen. He simply doesn't address the idea of Jesus' full deity in that book. But in a later short book called Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? The New Testament Evidence, his conclusion to the book is this, in part, this is from page 146, The first Christians did not think of Jesus as to be worshipped in and for himself. He was not to be worshipped as holy God or fully identified with God, far less as a God. If he was worshipped, it was the worship offered to God in and through him, worship of Jesus in God and God in Jesus. This is on pages 150 and 151, part of his conclusion chapter. No, by and large, the first Christians did not worship Jesus as such. 
Worship language and practice at times do appear in the New Testament in reference to Christ, but on the whole, there is more reserve on the subject. Christ is the subject of praise and hymn singing, the content of early Christian worship, more than the one to whom the worship and praise is offered. More typical is the sense that the most only question mark effective worship, the most effective prayer, is expressed in Christ and through Christ. That is also to say that we find a clear and variously articulated sense that Jesus enables worship, that Jesus is in a profound way the place and means of worship, right, but not the object, which is the Father. Equally, it has become clear that for the first Christians, Jesus was seen to be not only the one by whom believers come to God, but also the one by whom God has come to believers. In other words, God is acting through him. Skipping a bit, the only one to be worshipped is the one God. He means the Father. But how can Christians fail to honor the one through whom it believes the only God has most fully revealed himself? But such worship should always be offered to the glory of God the Father. End quote. Now, Dunn is conflicted. He wants to say the answer to the title of the book question, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus, is no. They only worshiped God, that is to say, the Father. But then he'll turn right around and say, okay, they worship Jesus, but to the glory of another. It seems like if he thought about this a little more clearly, he would want to say that there are sort of two kinds of worship or two senses of the English word worship. And in one sense, it's only given to God. In another sense, it can be given to Jesus, which is to the glory of God. Now, I take it that a fully divine being like the Father is worship-worthy just because of their divine attributes, that his worship-worthiness to be in the main, the final object of worship is implied by, or it supervenes on, his other divine attributes. Okay. If that's right, then Dunn is implying here that Jesus, according to the New Testament authors, is not fully divine. If he were fully divine, he would be worshipped just for the sake of himself, not to the glory of someone else over him. So again, I think Dunn's a little unclear, but I think he's right that in the New Testament, the main and ultimate recipient of worship is the Father, aka God, and Jesus is worshipped, or if you'd rather say, honored to God's glory. So, no New Testament scholar? Now, if that interpretation of Dunn is right, then he doesn't think that even in John, Jesus is preached to be fully divine. And so then Craig's over-the-top statement that no New Testament scholar thinks this is wrong. There is at least one very prominent and influential recent scholar who seems to have thought exactly that, that nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus fully divine. So, his no scholars claim, I say, is false. It's refuted by the counterexample of James Dunn. And I think that Dr. Craig, as soon as he made this no scholars claim, actually kind of realized that he'd gone too far. Because a little bit later in the discussion, he pulls back from claiming that no scholar thinks that Jesus is fully divine in the New Testament to the weaker claim that the vast majority of scholars wouldn't agree with that. He pulls his punch. He says, the overwhelming majority of New Testament scholars disagree with Tuggy's view that Christ is portrayed in the New Testament as a mere man. Okay, so I guess we really agree. It's false that no New Testament scholar thinks that nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus presented as fully divine. Okay, good. Now back to the vast majority claim. I think it's probably true that a vast majority of scholars, that is, current-day or recent New Testament scholars, 
think that somewhere or other in the New Testament, Jesus is presented as being fully divine. And the reason for that vast majority is that a lot of them think that it's in the fourth gospel. Now, some of them, like Bart Ehrman, I don't think have really much rethought their approach to John since their evangelical days. There's a lot of careless citing of things like the Father and I are one, before Abraham was, I am, things like that. And I have to say that a lot of New Testament scholars are kind of allergic to concerns of systematic theology. Very often, they will give interpretations that seem to support some kind of Unitarian interpretation, but they'll turn right around and just, oh yeah, obviously this is Trinitarian, every Christian's Trinitarian, right? And somehow this can be harmonized with the traditions of the 4th century and beyond. That's true also of Dunn, Hurtado, and many others that I've read. In other words, they just compartmentalize New Testament understanding from systematic theology. They'll read the New Testament in many cases, a lot like various Unitarian Christians, and then they'll say, well, but of course, in theology we know, and then they say Catholic stuff. Why the big difference? Well, you know, traditions change and evolve, and the roots of the later stuff are somehow in the earlier stuff. Wave your hands, change subjects, call it a day. So New Testament scholars like this, and this includes people like Dunn and people like Ehrman, they're comfortable with really extreme Christological evolution as the New Testament is written. They're happy to say that in early New Testament books, Jesus is a very special man, appointed and empowered by God. And in the latest books of the New Testament, Jesus is a God-man, or at least divine in a much stronger sense. Of course, not all Christians are comfortable with that sort of inconsistency in the New Testament about its central subject, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's human Messiah. That's why some recent generations of evangelical scholars have tried to harmonize the synoptics with John by urging that Jesus is presented as fully divine even in the synoptics. It's not plausible. It involves a lot of nonsense talk about divine identity and things like that but it's easy to understand the motivation. It's embarrassing if the synoptics are presenting a non-divine Jesus, and then John comes around later presenting a divine Jesus, right? So they're trying to, in a sense, raise Jesus up to the same level in the synoptics. What Unitarian Christians like me do is we understand the teaching of John to be, in essence, the same as is taught in the synoptics. We think Jesus is a man in all four Gospels, It's just that the language and the emphasis is different in John. Where does Craig fall in this? I'm not sure which camp he goes in, to tell you the truth. Is he happy with radical Christological evolution in the New Testament? Does he want to try to see the synoptics and acts as consistent with the fourth gospel? That's a tall order. You know, I'm pretty sure he's not in my camp, which is seeing the Jesus of the fourth gospel as substantially the same as the Jesus of Acts and the Synoptics. So, some big New Testament issues here. Some big sort of foundational assumptions that are not very often discussed. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some arguments about divine providence.
Okay, let's go then to clip number two. It's also a question from Hasker. In John 16, 13, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the disciples into all truth. But on your approach, it would seem that the Spirit's efforts have resulted in massive failure on precisely a point that is of overriding importance to Unitarians, namely monotheism and the unity of God. What are you to make of that? Well, this kind of argument from divine providence, I think, takes a lot of guts to urge if you're a Protestant and an open theist. Emphasis uh, on Protestants. Protestants think that the mainstream, sometimes God allows it to go wrong on very important things for a very long time. I don't think God's spirit failed because what happened is the mainstream small-c Catholic tradition actually preserves in its creeds, especially the older ones, all the stuff I think is essential to the gospel. So I think what's essential to the gospel is basically what's preached in Acts. So God's not going to get rid of this because it's preserving the truth, even while it's layering in all this other stuff. Hmm. Is Tuggy saying that arguing from divine providence can backfire, Bill, especially if one is a Protestant? Yes. Well, you need to understand that this was a question posed by Bill Hasker, who is both a Protestant and an open theist. Ah. Now, that is to say, he denies divine foreknowledge of the future. Well, again, that's a very contentious way to describe open theism. It makes it sound like there is some future which is complete out there in future land, which somehow God is blind to. That is not what most open theists think. But let's let him continue. And so Tuggy is kind of using a a so's-your-old-man argument here, saying, well, you as an open theist must recognize that the Holy Spirit has not preserved the church from error in affirming that God has complete foreknowledge of the future. Now, that's not a problem for someone like me who affirms divine foreknowledge. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Never mind that Molinism was a brand new thing in the world when Molina came up with it in early modern times. But in any case, Dr. Craig is a Protestant. And as such, he too is committed to important, widespread, long-lasting errors being allowed by God. And so why not this? Why not Trinity and Incarnation? Now, instead of considering the force of this reply against him, he decides he's going to lob a little textual argument my way based on the gospel according to John. I would offer a stronger formulation of this same argument that Hasker has given. And it would go like this. In his gospel, John says that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all the truth and will teach us all things that we need to know. And according to John's gospel, this includes the teaching that Jesus is God. That is right at the heart of the Gospel of John. John 1.1, John 1.18, John 20.28. So clearly John thought that the deity of Christ is among those central truths that are taught to us by the Holy Spirit. And so the person who denies the deity of Christ has to be denying this promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all the truth. Nope, that doesn't follow. Of course, I think that promise was fulfilled. The further revelation that needed to be given is what we see in the rest of the New Testament. It has to do particularly with the ministry of Paul and the abilities for the Gentiles to enter the kingdom of God without having to keep the law of Moses. 
that really was something new that Christ had not clearly revealed up to that time. Now, this is an extremely lame and question-begging little argument. This is not good Craig. So he's assuming something which I deny, which is that when anyone is called God in that gospel, it means that they're fully divine, or at least has the kind of divinity a divine person must have, because in his view it can't entail being a God. He gives a popular spin to the fourth gospel that I call the bookends reading, and this is popular among evangelical apologists and some conservative evangelical scholars. Right? Look, Jesus is called God at the beginning. He's called God at the end. I mean, what else do you need? That's just the bookends that the author gives. It's an inclusio, right? It sounds better when you say it like that. And then we've just ignored everything in the middle. To me, that's not a serious interpretation of the gospel according to John. And the assumption that to be called God, you need to be fully divine is actually refuted by Jesus in this book in chapter 10. So we can't go assuming that in interpreting the book. So really, based on chapter 1 and chapter 20, Jesus is divine. The same Jesus who says the Father is greater than him. The same Jesus who says the Father is the one true God. The same Jesus who says that the Father gives him his message and his authority. The same Jesus who says that the Father is both our God and his God. This is a very weak argument. This isn't the best bill You can't ignore the whole middle of the book in interpreting the book. Next week on the Trinity's podcast, I'll respond to the rest of Dr. Craig's recent podcast responses to my recent work. And I'll make a few suggestions about where we should go from here. This week's thinking music has been the track Glenn Voon by Van Loon. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.